So Genesis 18, 1 to 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat, so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant... Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sears of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him, Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. When you have people over for dinner, you tend to treat different people in different ways. There's almost a bit of a ranking thing that happens, isn't there? You can tell by the kind of food that you get or the kind of service that you get, how important you are. Um, I mean, it's kind of an unspoken etiquette. If you're having family members over, you won't bother to clean the house much. It'll probably just be baked beans on toast or two-minute noodles or something like that. But if you're having someone special over, well, the attitude changes, doesn't it? I mean, you make sure that you eat in the dining room, not at the kitchen bench or on the lounge in front of the television. You make sure that the nice plates come out, the ones that very, very rarely get used. You put out far more cutlery than you normally would for a meal in the household, don't you, if it's a special guest. Um, And the two-minute noodles and lasagna, they're definitely not on the menu. It's something far more important than that. I remember when we were young, uh, when I was a little child, uh, my dad knew a guy who played rugby league for Balmain. And he was coming to our place for dinner. 
this was like having royalty come to our house. This was just extraordinary to have Mark Tunks, the, the Balmain fullback, coming into our home. Uh, my brothers and I were excited about it for weeks. We were on our very best behaviour. We, we tidied our room without being asked. We helped out in any way that we possibly could. And, and when he came to dinner, well, it was the good plates that came out and lots of cutlery on the table and the best that we could do for him. We were all in awe of this special guest. Well, can I say, that's kind of what happens in these two chapters of Genesis. What we have is God coming to visit. And what we see is two vastly different responses to God visiting. Now, it sounds a bit strange that God's the one who's visiting, but that's really what we see in this passage. I've got to say, I think this is one of the strangest passages in the whole Old Testament. And it doesn't get explained in any way. And no one else, the writer doesn't seem to think that it's strange. But what's happening here is truly weird. Have a look at chapter 18. Look at the opening two verses. says this, the Lord. One thing that you need to notice before we go any further. See that word Lord there, the second word in the sentence? See how it's a small capital O-R-D? That's the God word. That's the word that means Yahweh. This is God who is appearing here. Uh, a little later on, you'll see the word Lord with small L-O-R, or capital L, small O-R-D. That's just the word for master or, or sir. Uh, but that capital L-O-R-D word, that's the God word. So it says, the Lord appeared to Abram near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Now, nothing too unusual there so far, because if you go back to the beginning of chapter 17, it says the same thing. It says that the Lord appeared. It doesn't explain how the Lord appeared, but now look at the next verse. Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. See, now you've got to put those two verses together. The Lord... God appeared to Abram at Mamre. And then there's these three men walking down the road. As the story unfolds, we realise that one of them is God. Now, there's no explanation as to why this happens. And as, as best I can think, this is the only time in the whole story of the Old Testament that God just comes wandering down the road. There's there's nothing like this in the rest of the Old Testament, nothing to match this story, and the writer doesn't even think he needs to explain it. It's God walking down the road. But see, instead of being caught up with explaining that, he focuses on one thing. He focuses on Abram's response to God appearing here. So how does Abraham respond when God visits Well, as these three figures draw a little closer, Abram rushes out to greet them. And he doesn't just greet them. We're told that he bows down low to the ground. He seems to recognise that this is someone incredibly important. He offers to wash their feet. He offers them a place to rest. He insists that they stay for a meal. Here they are, out in the open, in the middle of nowhere. And this man is going to do everything within his power to welcome them. To show great and extraordinary hospitality to them. He puts on the best spread that he possibly can, or sorry, I should say, he races and tells Sarah to put on the best spread that she possibly can. I love the idea that he just races in and says, could you bake some bread for us? I'm pretty sure it takes a little while to do that, but and slaughtering the animal probably would have taken a while. But the point is, 
Abram knows how to respond to God. He knows that you respond with humility, that you respond with respect. Well, we've heard about the uh, the birth of uh, uh, Tracy and Chris's new little boy, but the announcement of a birth of a child or the announcement that someone's pregnant is a very exciting thing, isn't it? I, I can remember each of the four times that Deb told me she was pregnant with each of our children. It was exciting stuff. Well, while the visitors are there at lunch, God announces that Sarah is going to have a child. God announces that she will give birth to a son, but within a year, he says, I'll come back and you're going to have your own son from your wife, Sarah. But Sarah's heard all of this before. In fact, she's heard this for 25 years now. And it's so far, it's just been talk. And she thinks that it's still a bit of a joke to think that a woman of her age and her husband being the age that he is will now have a child. And she laughs at what's said. Uh, So there in verse 10, partway through the verse, now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abram and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself and she thought, am I now... After I am now worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Did you notice that it says that she thought that to herself? She didn't say that out loud. She's laughing to herself as she's thinking this. But God knows what it is that she's thinking. And he says, why did Sarah laugh? And say, will I really have it, will I really not have a child now that I am old? And the next verse there is the important one, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, if it were up to Abram and Sarah, well, laughing would be the right response because it ain't going to happen. But God's saying, do you think it's too difficult for me to be able to achieve this? God says that all that they need to do is continue to trust him, to continue to believe that he will be able to do this. Well, after the men have enjoyed their lunch, they head off to what seems to have been their original destination. They're heading down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Even that name still rings in our culture today, doesn't it? We know what that means. We know what type of city that was. This city has become uh, the kind of classic example of hard-heartedness towards God. The two men walk off, and this is the point at which we realise that they are angels or messengers from God. They head down to Sodom and Gomorrah, but God remains behind to talk with Abram. We have this funny little conversation where God's thinking to himself, will I tell Abram what I'm about to do? Yeah, I think I will. So he explains to Abram that there's been an outcry that's come from the city of Sodom, that God has heard about the injustice, the immorality of this town. We still have outcries today, don't we? I mean, you see them on the news quite regularly. We've seen a a couple on the news this past week. We know the story of Jill Jill Maher and Adrian Bailey. I mean, the outrage has now come because we found that this man has actually served time in jail for seven other rapes and a violent assault. But he was out on parole at the time that he attacked Jill Maher. I mean, there's outrage. We don't want those things happening in our society. We're horrified by those sorts of stories. Or go a little further away and, whoops, go a little further away and you'd be seeing a picture of Syria up there if my computer were working properly. But it doesn't look like it's going to. 
uh, what's been happening in Syria has really been quite horrifying, hasn't it? Uh, we want justice. We want. We don't want to see that ongoing suffering of people, no matter which side of the fight they're on. I mean, it's a terrible thing that's happening there. There, there is an outcry in our world about those things. And countless other news stories that we see as well. Well, the outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah, God says that he's heard it and he's going to act. In fact, he says that he's going down there to visit Sodom and Gomorrah and see if it really is as he's heard. It's a strange thought, isn't it, that God would need to go and check things out down there. But that's why those angels or those messengers have been sent down there. And God says that Sodom and Gomorrah will be judged. If the evil that he's heard about is there, then it's time to do something about that. And we want justice, don't we? Don't we want to see those things come to an end? But then there's a strange conversation that takes place between Abram and God. Abram asks God, how many righteous people would there need to be in Sodom for you to not wipe the city away? And Abram offers up a number. He says, what about 50 If there were 50 righteous people in Sodom, would you spare the judgment on that city? Now, the scene that follows is almost comical, isn't it? God's talking about a just and fair punishment that he's going to bring about because he's heard the outcry about the evil. He's heard the complaints that people have about the injustice and the immorality in this city. And Abram throws up this number. And look at it, verse 23. Then Abram approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? And God said, you know what, for 50, I wouldn't. I wouldn't sweep the place away. And so Abram says, what about 45? And then he says, what about 40? And each time God answers him, what about 30? What about 20? How about 10? If there were 10 righteous people. Now, at first, the reason for Abram asking all of these questions doesn't seem that obvious. I mean, it just seems a bit strange. It's this kind of weird duck Dutch auction that Abram's doing, wanting to see whether or not he can actually save the town and keeps going down to these smaller and smaller numbers. But then at the beginning of the next chapter, we realise that Lot... Abram's nephew is living in Sodom. We haven't heard anything about Lot since chapter 14 when Abram and a small band of men, do you remember the story? Uh, They'd been, Lot and and a number of people from Sodom had been captured by a, a raiding king who'd come from out of town and attacked the city of Sodom. Abram had gone to his rescue with a small, small band of men. We haven't heard from Lot since then, but now he's back in Sodom and it looks like Abram's trying to rescue him again doesn't it this time not by taking a band of men down there to grab him but by pleading with God on his behalf well in chapter 19 the story begins with the two angels the two men going down and visiting Sodom if you had to ask people what would be the seedier part of Sydney what would be the kind of dodgy area that you would take people to if you wanted to show them the underbelly of Sydney, well I don't think there's any doubt that that place would be King's Cross. Uh, Best to go up there probably sometime after two o'clock because that's when it really starts to kick on, that's when the the partying really happens, Uh, but it really is a, 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 a seedy place isn't it? 
I mean, it's the biggest concentration of prostitution, drug dealing, illegal gambling and various other things. It's not the kind of place that you'd want to find yourself alone on a back street. But reading through the description of Sodom that we have here in Genesis chapter 19, I think it makes King's Cross look pretty tame, really. So how will the people of Sodom respond to the visit from God, albeit from God's messengers? Well, they arrive at the town gate just coming on evening and Lot is there at the town gate. Now, the parallels between Abram meeting these men and Lot meeting these men is quite striking. Abram met them as they were coming towards him. Lot is the one who's at the town gate. He greets them much the same way that Abram did. He offers them a meal some, uh, and offers to wash their feet, offers them somewhere to stay for the night. Now, at first glance, they at first they decline this offer. They say, you know what, we're going to stay outside. We're just going to stay in the town square. Not a good idea. Lot is insistent that they come and stay in his house. And this isn't just a question of hospitality. This is actually to do with the safety of these two men. He knows that if they're out on the streets at night, they will be in big trouble. He convinces them that they should come to his home because he hopes that they will be safe there. It looks as though being at Lot's home might not be as safe as he'd first thought. When our kids were younger, uh, when our girls were in the early years of high school, we used to get together in the morning at 8 o'clock before everyone went off their various ways and we used to read a small passage of the Bible. We'd gone through one of the Gospels together and, and then we decided we'd read from Genesis, from the beginning of Genesis. So we used to just read just a story, just a half a chapter or something uh, and have a quick chat about it and then everyone would head off to school or to work. Well, we'd reached Genesis chapter 19 and this is where you need to make sure that you have your Bible open. We got up to the point in Genesis chapter 19, verse 4, and the kids used to take it in turns to read. And Sarah was now reading the bit where the men of Sodom have surrounded Lot's house. And so she starts reading. Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded their house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out here so that... Oh, that's gross. I'm not reading that. You can't expect us to read that. So Deb said, oh, well, just go down to the next paragraph then. So Sarah started reading from verse 6. Lot went outside and said to the men uh, and to meet them, meet them and shut the door behind him. And he said, no, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out. Oh, that's disgusting. We shouldn't be reading this. So I have to confess, at this point, I'm biting my lip because I'm just about to burst with laughter. So Deb said to Lauren, look, okay, just skip that part. Go down to the next heading. So Sarah started, uh, Lauren started reading from the next part and she got to verse 31. One day, the older daughter, this is Lot and his two daughters who are now living up in the hills. The older daughter said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man here to lie with us, as is the custom over all the earth. Let us get our father to drink wine. Oh, this is really disgusting. You shouldn't be making us read this. At which point it just all went to pieces. But you know what? I think they actually got it. They understood the point. You're supposed to be horrified by what you read here. I mean, this really is terrible. That's exactly the response. 
We should be horrified by what we read. We should be disgusted by the men of Sodom and what they want to do. We should be shocked at Lot's willingness to give over his daughters so easily. We're supposed to be disturbed by the behaviour of Lot's daughters when they're hiding up in the mountains. The judgment finally comes on Sodom and Gomorrah. But God demonstrates grace because he does allow Lot and some of the members of his family to escape. But it also demonstrates that God does want justice as well. See, we're not the only ones crying out for justice. We're not the only ones who want God to do something about evil in the world. God's willing to do something about it. Well, this section ends on a fairly sad and fairly pathetic note. God made it possible for Lot to escape. But by the end of the chapter, he's living up in the hills, still very close to Sodom. And this will be the final time that we read about Lot in the Old Testament narrative. He's in the hills with his two daughters. His wife is gone and there are no men for his daughters to marry. So the daughters take it upon themselves to try to maintain the family line. It seems as though they've been living in Sodom just a little too long because they've clearly adopted the values and the morality of Sodom. I mean, what they propose to do, I don't know that there's a culture in the world that, do, that thinks that it's right. I mean, every culture thinks that this sort of incest is just completely and utterly wrong. As I said, this will be the last time we read about Lot in the Old Testament. But all the way through the story of Abraham so far, there's been this contrast between Lot and Abraham. I mean, it's really a simple contrast that's made. Abram's the guy who keeps trusting what God promised. And Lot's the guy who just keeps drifting away from what God has promised. It was 25 years ago that God called Abram out of Haran. Abram left because he believed what God said. He trusted what God said. Lot went with Abram. He knew what the promises were that God had made. He knew that accepting those promises, well, that just meant hanging around with Abram. Keep hanging around with the guy who believes God, the one who trusts God. But all of Lot's choices seem to see him moving further and further away from God. All of Lot's choices seem to show an indifference to God and his promises. And really the story ends with the sad consequences of those choices. But I think there's another contrast that stands at the heart of this passage, and that's the one that I mentioned at the beginning. What do you do when God comes to visit See, the way that Abram responds to the visitors and the way that the people of Sodom respond to the visitors, well, it's a stark contrast. Abram responds with complete humility and respect when God comes to visit. And the welcome given by the people of Sodom, well, it's quite terrifying really, isn't it? As I said, Sodom kind of becomes the classic example of hard-heartedness towards God, how not to respond when God visits Sodom and Gomorrah, even though the city was destroyed, it's mentioned dozens more times in the pages of the Old Testament. It's kind of held up regularly as the salutary tale, the one that you need to learn from. These hard-hearted people. And when we reach the New Testament, we see Jesus mentioning the example of Sodom and Gomorrah as well. But this time Jesus is comparing the people of Sodom to the people that he's meeting. And he says this, 
if the miracles that were performed here with you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. See, do you see what's happening with Jesus there? It's God visiting again. God is standing right in front of these people. In fact, performing miracles to prove who it is that's standing right in front of them. And Jesus is making a comment about the hard-heartedness of these people. He says that if the people of Sodom had seen what you've seen, they'd still be around. The city would still be here. They would have responded. Because the fact is, you guys are more hard-hearted than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's right to be appalled by the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But rather than pointing the finger at others, it's really a chance for us to say, well, how have we responded to God? See, like Jesus said, God has come to visit. And you have to decide how you respond to Jesus. By ignoring him and living however it is that you please. Or with humility and respect, humbling yourself before him doesn't mean that you'll be living a lifestyle like Sodom and Gomorrah. There are plenty of fine, upstanding people who still reject Jesus. It's a question of how you respond. How you respond to the fact that God has come in the person of Jesus.